You know, as we go through the Bible, we have all, I think, been struck by the number of times we have seen Jesus on the pages and impressed by the number of times. And I, I think, you know, that the cynical voice in me on occasion says, are you seeing him more than he really is there? You know, are, are we reading more into some of these stories, some of these passages then we really should. Maybe we should back off a little bit and just kind of study the Old Testament for the Old Testament, but then you turn around and you read something else and you see Jesus again. And there's just no denying that He is there and that all Scripture points to and directs us toward Him. And tonight's passage is is no different. We keep seeing Jesus and we also, by the way, are commanded to look for Him, to consider Him, to think about Him in all of our study. Whenever we open the pages of Scripture, the first question that ought to be on our minds is, where is Jesus here? Because the truth is, He is here. I want to start just reading a verse out of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. The writer says, Holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. The Hebrew writer, whoever it is, and I believe it's Paul, We can have that discussion sometime. There are people who disagree with that. I think Paul wrote the book of Hebrews. But setting that aside for a moment, the writer of this book continues to draw us to parallels between the Old and the New Testament, between Jesus and all of the things that were of Israel, that were of the Jewish Jewish faith and and Jewish um, way of living. And it's amazing because he just nails it. Last week we talked about the veil that was in the tabernacle. And we know, again, from the book of Hebrews, that the veil very specifically represented his flesh. And we didn't have to guess, what does the veil mean? Well, it's his flesh, because the Bible tells us that very clearly. And once again here, we're told in Hebrews 3.1 to consider Jesus, who is the high priest of our confession. And if you read through the book of Hebrews, you see over and over that Jesus is referred to as our high priest. There is a line drawn for us, a connection between Jesus and the high priest in the times of Israel. The first high priest was Aaron. Now, why are we talking about the high priest? Because that's where we're headed tonight. Because in the time that we've been spending over the last few weeks talking about the tabernacle, we now step outside of the tabernacle, or at least away from the design pattern of the tabernacle, to look at the priesthood. To look at God's design for the priesthood. And once again, at the center of the stage, is our high, our high priest the high priest of our confession, Jesus. But what was interesting, this week, um, as I studied through this, there was a lot of fascinating things about the garments of the high priest, what they look like, the colors involved, the stitching, everything that goes into these garments. And we're going to see that over this week and probably on into next week. But for all of that, I came down literally to this morning thinking about these things and, and wanting to understand them, wanting to present them in the best way possible. When another connection was drawn for me, very clearly, and it's a connection that I want us to see. Now I want you to read with me, just follow along, Exodus chapter 28, beginning in verse 1, we'll read the first five verses as we move from the tabernacle and its design to the design for the high priest. The Lord is still speaking with Moses up on the mountain, and he says to him, Bring near to yourself Aaron your brother. And his sons with him from among the sons of Israel to minister as priests to me. Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, Eleazar, and Ithamar, Aaron's sons. You're going to hear again about Nadab and Abihu later on. They make a critical error in their ministry. But God goes on and says, You shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother for glory and for beauty. 
You shall speak to all the skillful persons whom I have endowed with the spirit of wisdom, that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him, that he may minister as priest to me. These are the garments which they shall make, a breastpiece, and an ephod, and a robe, and a tunic of checkered work, a turban, and a sash. And they shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons, that he may minister as priest to me. Then, he says, they shall take the gold, and the blue, and the purple, and the scarlet material, and the fine linen. Let's pray real quick and we'll see what this connection is. Father in heaven. I pray your Holy Spirit would guide us into this study and into our, uh, our, our understanding tonight. I pray, Father, you would remove all other things from our minds, all distractions, all that might keep us from seeing you and hearing you and experiencing you tonight, Lord. We, we said this before, Father, because the music stops doesn't mean the worship stops. But we go on, we continue to worship you in your word. We continue to glory in you and and to to be excited by you and to be amazed by you. And as we read these things and and they they cause the hair to stand up on the back of our necks or or they, they just bring excitement to our hearts, they do so because we're caught up in this place of worship that continues. And I pray, Lord, tonight as we study your word that we would do so with worshipful hearts. And Father, if our hearts cry out, praise God, hallelujah. And it's because we haven't left this place of worship that we continue on. Help us do that tonight, Lord. And Holy Spirit, teach us that we may know you better in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, once again, we see right right off the bat here is discussion about what materials are going to be used for the garments of the high priest. And he says in verse 5, blue, purple, scarlet, and fine linen. Those four colors, we've seen them already. They're the colors of the inner covering of the tabernacle. They're the colors of the veil and the door of the tabernacle and the outer door, the screen. All are the same color, the same four colors. Now, on a cursory glance, you might just say, well, maybe they're just God's favorite colors. He just likes purple, scarlet, and blue, and white. It's just what he likes. But there's so much more to that. And you know, we've seen how these colors speak of Jesus how they indicate Him, how they even go so far. If you weren't here last week, we ended on this note, that these colors not only speak of the person of Jesus, but they speak of the wounds of Jesus on the cross. An amazing thing to think about. Blue and purple, the colors of bruises. Obviously scarlet, the color of blood that would have been splattered on the cross for our sins. And white, the white of linen, like the white of His bones, which would have been visible through His back as He was broken on that cross for us. Amazing. But in these colors that we see so clearly speaking of Jesus, now the high priest has the same garments. He's wearing or will wear the same colors that God ordained for the tabernacle. This connection between the high priest and the tabernacle. Now, what what does that mean for us today? When we look at Jesus as our great high priest, he's the picture, he's the high priest, the high priest prefigures or foreshadows Jesus in the same way the tabernacle, and we talked about this a couple of three weeks back, the tabernacle prefigures the church. It prefigures the church. There is this incredible connection between Jesus and the church that we see in the high priest and the tabernacle. The high priest is wearing those same colors that are the tabernacle. It's almost as if he he is representative. He's one and the same with the tabernacle. And I got to thinking about this and thinking about the picture that we see here drawn for us of Jesus and the church. 
And so we're going to delve into this a little bit tonight. It actually brought all the study, which already for me was interesting, and brought it all down to one place where the Lord said specifically this morning, tonight is about Jesus and the church. The two together, that, that bond, that connection, that cannot be severed by man. Regardless of all the things that man has done in the name of Jesus, regardless of the history that the church has had, which has not always been pretty, the church hasn't always looked blue, scarlet, purple, and white. There are many times it's looked black in its heart. There are many times it's been dark. But the Lord wants us to understand, I believe, the intimate connection between Jesus and His church. And we're going to see that, and I think very clearly. It's interesting as we look at the, the garments of the high priest. Again, he says in verse 5, they shall take gold and blue and purple and scarlet and fine linen. And you may have noticed right off the bat, there is a different color added in, a different material, and that's gold. And you wonder, well, how exactly did they, did they do that? Well, Exodus 39 verse 3 says, they hammered out gold sheets and cut them into threads to be woven in with the blue and purple and scarlet material and the fine linen, the work of a skillful workman. This was pure gold woven into the very fabric of the high priest's garments. So it was absolutely beautiful. It was rich. It was glorious. And again, as we've talked about gold, speaking of deity, Speaking of deity, along with these colors, the high priest wearing that picture or that foreshadowing of Jesus who would come as God in the flesh. Now again, I I think the Lord wants us to be clear tonight on who and what the church really is in relation to Jesus. For it's not what a lot of people think. It's not about buildings and cathedrals. It's not rites, rituals, and religiosity. It's not an organization. The church is not a governing body. When our elders meet together, they don't do so to reign in authority over all underneath us and make these heavy-duty, authoritative decisions. The role of the elders is prayer and the ministry of the Word. The Bible is very clear on that. The church is not a ruling council. The church, very simply, is an organism stitched together, woven together, created by God, by His hands, person by person, into something amazing. And Jesus loves the church. He loves the church. He absolutely loves the church. So let's talk about that. Keep your finger in Exodus 28 and flip over to the book of Ephesians for a few minutes tonight. Ephesians, across the Bible, New Testament, Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians chapter 5, beginning down in verse 25. Actually, let's begin back in verse 22. We have some husbands and wives here. It would be good to kind of hear both sides of this. Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 22. Wives, be subject to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife. Now, if we stop right there, there's some husbands who might go home happy, at least at least till they got to the car. But we read on, as Christ is also head of the church, so he himself being the savior of the body, but as the church is subject to Christ, so the wives ought to be to their husbands and everything. Just let that lie with you. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. A little side note, we're not going to get all into the husband and wife thing tonight because this passage is not about husbands and wives. 
Paul tells us very clearly down in verse 32 that this is about Christ and the church. But just for a moment with husbands and wives, it's interesting there is a different comment made to wives than is made to husbands. Wives are told to be subject to husbands. Husbands are told to love their wives. Why is it different? Because men have a different... Men need to hear something differently than women do. And women need to hear something differently than men do. Men need to learn how to love their wives. And wives, in turn, need to learn how to be subject to their husband. The Spirit is speaking to us in our male and femaleness so that we understand, not my femaleness, because I don't have femaleness, I have maleness, and that's, let's just be very clear about that. But He's speaking to us in our differences so that we understand how we are to relate, even in our marriages. And He's speaking to our hearts. And when God speaks to me, He says, Rick, you need to love Cheryl. And so that's my focus. You need to give yourself up for her, which means she becomes first place for me in my marriage. Anyway, reading on, listen to this. Husbands love your wives, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands also ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his own wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ also does the church, because we are members of his body. For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother, and shall be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then Paul says, and he makes it clear, this mystery is great but I am speaking with reference to Christ and the church. We thought we had a great marriage seminar there, but Paul says, no, it's not about marriage. Sure, you can apply these things there, but this is about Christ and the church. And when we understand that, reading that passage, it takes on a totally different significance. I want to give you tonight, as we study the garments of the high priest, and we'll get back there, but as we study it, I want to give you five designations for the church that you can just jot down as we go through tonight. Five designations, and the first one may be the most precious, and it is, and you've heard it before, the bride. The bride of Christ. The bride of Christ. This is how Jesus feels about the church. This is how Jesus describes the church. And listen again to verse 27 that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. And I wonder, when does this happen? Because we know that the church is not holy or blameless in the world today. There are spots and wrinkles, at least as far as our human flesh can see. There are spots and wrinkles all over the church. When is it that Jesus presents her to himself as pure, as perfect, as holy, as blameless... And the answer is, the answer is, it's coming soon. It's coming soon. Revelation 19, verse 7 tells us, Let us rejoice and be glad and give the glory to Him, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. Now when you compare these two verses, Ephesians 27, saying He will present her to Himself, and then Revelation 19.7 that she has made herself ready. They're, they're one and the same. There is coming a time when Christ will present the church to himself as his bride, as pure and holy and blameless, as glorified. And it's a time that is yet to come. It's soon to come, but to understand it, let me just cover this very quickly. There is a prophetic timeline in Scripture. Now many of you know this, but what strikes me, and it's interesting, is as much as we have talked about prophecy and the end times at the bridge, there are still many who are confused about what happens first. 
When does Jesus come? And, and how does he come? And what does that look like? So let me be very clear, and I'm not even going to give you scriptures, I'm just going to give you the timeline, and if you want me to back it up, I'll do that for you later. But the next thing on the prophetic calendar, the next thing to look for in, in prophecy, in the world around us, the next thing to be expecting, you will not expect, because it's the rapture of the church. It's the being caught up. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 and 18 talks about that. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, along about verse 51, 52 and there. That's the next thing to look for. Now it's interesting because as I talk prophecy, occasionally I'll get emails from friends, and they'll be, look at this, where I think this guy might be Antichrist. And as far as my understanding of Scripture goes, chances are very good we're not even going to see him. Because the next thing slotted to happen, according to just the biblical timeline, if you're taking the plain text of Scripture, is the rapture of the church. Well, when's that going to happen, Rick? I have no idea. But Jesus said, watch for it. Be ready. Why is that important? How does that apply to the bride? Because it is at the rapture that the church is caught up and in that moment glorified. And when we are glorified, all spots, all wrinkles, all blemishes, all skirmishes, all problems, all conflicts, gone, washed away as we as a body are caught up and glorified to be the bride of Christ. Isn't that awesome? Which means all the divisions in church today, gone in a heartbeat. Non-existent. There won't be the Methodist church and Christ the King Oak Harbor and the bridge and other, there won't be all these different de- there will be one church and the church won't even be called the church anymore it will be called the Bride of Christ and that happens in that catching up when we receive our glorified bodies that's how Paul can talk about in Ephesians the fact that we're going to be presented that, that the church will be pure and spotless and Revelation 19.7 again tells us the Lamb has brought the bride up she's made herself ready so the rapture happens at some point after that that period of time we've discussed Revelation 6-19 through 19 talks about it it's the tribulation Daniel chapter 9 gives us the specific time frame of that it's a 7 year time frame now, be clear with me, and I just I, I want to make sure we understand this. This is not kicked off by the rapture. It's not that when the church is caught up, immediately a tribulation starts on earth. The Bible is clear on that. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24 through 27. Daniel tells us, the angel speaking to Daniel says, it will be the moment that Israel signs a covenant with this world leader who we know of as Antichrist. That will kick off the beginning of that seven-year tribulation period. Okay? Church is caught up. At some point after that, probably sooner as opposed to later, that will happen. There will be a covenant signed, a covenant of peace, a peace treaty that makes sense. And everyone in the Middle East is waiting for, looking for that, desiring some kind of peace to be brought. And peace will be proffered, and it will be a seven-year peace treaty, but halfway through it will be violated by this world leader who signs off on it. That seven year period of time, which is supposed to be a time of peace, becomes a time of tribulation on earth. But here's the thing to understand. During those seven years, where is the church? Kathy, you know where the church is. Russ, you better know where the church is. The church, for all intents and purposes, is on a holy honeymoon with Jesus. The bride is with the groom. Is with him in heaven. In heaven, during that time, caught up with Christ experiencing who knows what. And it's going to be awesome and perfect and wonderful and amazing. 
And following that, following the seven years, at the end of the seven years comes what we can call the glorious appearing of Christ. This is where then Christ comes back to earth and Zechariah 14 tells us explicitly sets foot down on the Mount of Olives and begins what was promised to Israel throughout her history, a reign a thousand year reign on the throne of David from Jerusalem tangibly yes right here on planet earth now I never used to believe that until I just read what the Bible said without loopholes and ideas and jumping through hoops just reading it straight through reading the book of Revelation straight through reading the book of Daniel straight through and understanding just a very basic simple timeline that he does come back and people say well why does he come back for that millennium well he comes back for that millennium because he said he was going to because throughout Israel, if God doesn't come back and set up an eternal kingdom on earth, on the throne of David, then he lied. Because the Old Testament prophets say this over and over, that that's exactly what will happen. Read the book of Isaiah. The whole thing. All 66, 60, how many chapters in Isaiah? Anybody know off the top of your head? 66 chapters. Read them all. But especially you start getting down to the last 10, 15 chapters. It's mind-blowing. But it is clear God is setting up an actual kingdom. He has a promise to Israel. If Jesus doesn't do it, God has not kept his promises. But we know God keeps his promises. So that's when that happens. And then at the end of that thousand year reign, that millennium, Revelation 20 talks about it. At the end of that time, then Jesus ushers in the new heaven, the new earth, the new Jerusalem. And if you want to read about that and just have your heart lifted up, Revelation 21 and 22. Why am I telling you all of this? Because the connection between Christ and the church has to do with all of that. And as the church, as the bride, we are right now getting ready. We still have the, the spots and the blemishes. You ever see um, my big fat Greek wedding? You know how like on the morning of the wedding she's got a pimple and she's just freaking out. And I think her fiancé did too, but he used some uh, window cleaner. And it went away. But she didn't. Anyway, we won't have that. Right now we see that. We look in the mirror. We're getting ready for the wedding. We can't wait till Jesus comes. And we see the spots and blemishes and wrinkles and problems. We go, oh, we're not really quite there. But we will be. We will be. When we're caught up, it's like a holy Windex. You know, squirt, squirt. And we're going to be glorified. And it'll be awesome. The bride of Christ. So the marriage of the bride of Christ is coming. It's, on the ne- it's the next thing on the agenda for the church. Caught up to be with Jesus, to meet him, the Bible says, Matthew 24, in the clouds, we will meet him in the air, and so we will be with the Lord forever. Which includes, by the way, coming back down here, but that's another discussion for another time. But that's then. What about now? Well, right now, the spirit of Jesus resides and guides He resides in the church and he guides the church. And Matthew 18.20 tells us, For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I'm there. I'm there. And we ought not to forget that. And I think maybe sometimes we do. That on a Wednesday night, we're sitting here in Bible study, we're having worship time together, that the Lord is here among us. Not in some esoteric, vague way. He is here. Right now. And while you all are looking at me and wondering what I'm going to tell you next, guess what? He's looking at you. And he is enjoying every expression on your face. And he's enjoying everything about how you're responding to his word. He's here. He is among us. I love Revelation chapter 2 verse 1. Jesus describes himself as, quote, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Well, what does that mean? Well, the seven golden lampstands were a picture of the church. 
He's the one who walks among the churches. He just This is what he does. This is where he wants to be. It's where he desires to be, which is absolutely amazing to me that he wants to be with, with us, you know, this motley crew of people spread out across the earth. This is where Jesus wants to be. And we almost get this romantic picture. If you want to make a music video that's romantic, have a guy with a guitar surrounded by candlelight playing. This is where Jesus is, walking, moving among the lampstands. And my friends, this relationship Jesus shares with the church is so intimate that that it's not only called the bride, but the second designation of the church is it's called his body. His body. The body of Christ. Now these two are not new to anyone here. I don't think the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. But listen, Ephesians 5.30, he says, we're members of his body. 1 Corinthians 12.27 says, now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. So connected to you, to Christ are you that you're not only his bride, but you are his very body. You and I. The body of Christ. So how does this play out in the life of the church? Is there a place where Jesus reveals the church as his bride and body in that kind of intimacy? And my answer would be yes. It's in worship. It's as we worship him. It's when we come together as a body in worship. And I'm not just tying that to Sunday morning, although when we worship on Sundays, when we worship on Wednesdays, when we come together, if we're worshiping in small groups in our homes, whenever and wherever the body comes together to worship, there is an intimacy that happens because it's Christ's body. It's Christ's bride. And listen as the Hebrew writer talks about Jesus. He, he draws from prophecy, Psalm 22 and Isaiah 8, and he says the following, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11. He writes, for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Listen to that. Christ is not ashamed to call us brothers. Now there are times when I'm ashamed. None of you. In fact, pretty much, I think pretty much everyone here tonight, I'm not ashamed to call you brother. There's some other people that didn't make it tonight, I'm pretty ashamed of it. No, I'm kidding. But he's never ashamed to call us brothers. I would think he should be, based on how we've acted, things we've done, things we've said, mistakes we've made, failures that have just laid out in front of us. But he's not ashamed of us. And he's not ashamed to call us brothers. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one. So intimate is that connection of Christ with his body. The depth and the magnitude of the statement alone should leave us breathless. But there's more. The Hebrew writer goes on to say in verse 12 of Hebrews chapter 2, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. Where is Jesus when he sings praises to the Father? In the midst of the congregation. In other words, while we are worshiping, Jesus is worshiping with us. It's not just us worshiping Jesus. If you are worshiping, eyes closed, focused on the Father, and all of a sudden you hear a voice and you're not sure, and you look around, no one around you is singing, it's Him. Because Jesus worships with the body. He sings in the midst of the congregation, right along with those who He would even call His brothers and sisters, although He's God. He's deity, and we're not. He still would call us brothers and sisters, and He still would choose to be among us, singing with us, worshiping together in the midst of the congregation. He is both, listen, the object of our worship, but He is also involved in our worship. It's both. Did you know that? 
I've always thought of Jesus as the object of our worship, but the involved one, singing right along, worshiping with, getting caught up with us in that time. You want to know why it is that worship is so special and so different than any other time? You can go to a concert and hear great music. You can turn on American Idol and be impressed by some of the voices. But it's different, isn't it? I mean, real worship, when you just get lost in it, it's different. Why is that? I submit to you it's because there's another voice singing. That Jesus is singing along with us. That we are caught up in something that is so much greater than vocal cords or instruments or physical sound. But spiritually we are wrapped up, His bride and His body, all together. And that's what makes worship so precious. It's the voice of Jesus singing right along with the congregation. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 13 goes on and says, Again, I'll put my trust in Him. And again, behold, I am the children whom God has given me. Therefore, and listen to this, since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise also partook of the same. In other words, He wears what we wear. He wears what the church wears. And if the church is a picture, if the tabernacle is a picture of the church, what does the high priest wear? He's wearing the tabernacle. In the same way that Christ is wearing the church, He put on flesh and blood and dwelt among us, John tells us. He is wearing what we wear. He has become like us to draw us to Him. What a thought! The Lord Jesus singing with the church in and among the body, lifting up and proclaiming praise to the Father. And all the while, in the same way the high priest wears the same material covering of the tabernacle, Jesus wears our covering of human flesh. But His, His covering is now woven together with that gold element, that deity. He is in His glorified state. So all that to say this, do not negate the importance of the church for in so doing we negate Jesus because he has bound himself, tied himself, connected himself intimately to the church, his bride, his body. Now go back to Exodus 28. Flip back over to Exodus 28 and let's look at some things here. Don't worry, we're not going to do the whole chapter tonight. I don't think we could. Well, we could, but probably about 11 o'clock I might be the last one here. Exodus 28, we'll look at verse 2, but let me ask this question. What reason is given, if you can think of our reading so far, what reason is given for the special garments of the high priest? Why does the high priest, why is he given specific, specially made garments? Look at verse 2 and answer the question. Why is he given special garments? For what reason? For glory and beauty. Number three on our list, the designation of of the church is the beauty of Christ. We are the bride, we are his body, but we are also, and this is just stunning, we are the beauty of Christ. The beauty of Christ. Sunday we saw that any time we devalue human life, we are culpable of murder. You remember talking about that. And it's been kind of fun around my house just to hear, you know, when we want to say idiot, how we're kind of stopped. Or, you know, we say, well, that, was just, that guy's a moron. No, he's not a moron. He just did a moronic thing because we don't want to, you know, be guilty of murder. But we saw that any time we do that, We devalue human life because human life has innate value. But listen, gang, in creation, we were deemed valuable. But in Christ, we are redeemed invaluable. Let me say that again. In creation, we were deemed valuable. That is, there's not a single person walking on the face of the earth that does not have intrinsic God-given value because God created each and every one of us. Believe it or not, however, when you become a Christian... When you come in Christ, you are redeemed and you move beyond just that intrinsic value. You, have, you are now invaluable. 
Because you are eternal in Christ. Your value increases tenfold, a hundredfold, eternityfold. You now have a value that cannot even be measured because you are in Christ. Now you may not feel all the, all the time different. You may still look at yourself and not feel altogether that valuable. But you are so valuable in Jesus. So much more so than you ever were before because you've been recreated. You've been elevated to new life and to a place of priestly honor and beauty that far surpasses the value of the old life. Because as beautiful and wonderful as life is, it also decays, doesn't it? I was talking to um, Aloha Danny, Danny Fernandez. Some of you all know him. He normally sits over in this area on Sunday mornings, has little kids running around, and he's Hawaiian. And he's the funniest guy you'll ever meet in your life. And I've been talking with him the last few days, and we've been hanging out a little bit. And, and Danny, we were talking just yesterday about this whole aging process. And I said, how old are you, Danny? I just got to know. And he said, well, you wouldn't believe me if I told you. And I said, no, tell me. How old are you? And, and he, he talks kind of that, you know, Hawaiian surfer dude talk anyway. Like, oh, man, you wouldn't believe me if I told you, dude. I'm like, well, no, go ahead. Yeah, how old are you? 53, man. What? Now, if you've seen him, that is unbelievable. I'm 40. He has 13 years on me, and I look way older than he does in all the wrong ways, in all the bad ways. I look at myself, and I go, ah. And so I was telling him, is that, I mean, that's got to be like a Polynesian thing. you got this great skin that's just smooth, and you look good, and I, man, by the time I'm 53, if I'm standing up, it's going to be a miracle. And this white, pasty skin that just gets all burned and cracked in the sun. He just, he just looks great. But, you know, from his perspective, no, I'm aging too. Now, I'm, I'm going to tell you a joke. Now, he told me this. He told me this was him telling it. I thought it was really funny. I'm going to pass it along. And if anybody's offended by it, I'll just take it off the tape later. Okay? But I said, how is it that you've got your, your skin looks so good? And he goes, oh, I, I'll tell you, it's the rice. So the rice? Yeah, my mom, she just feed us rice all the time. She feed us all kinds of rice. She put these big bowls of rice, and, and that's why I look young. And I said, really? And I'm, you know, buying it hook, line, and sinker because Danny always says this to me. He says something. I just believe him, and most of the time he's not telling the truth. But he just, so he's kidding. He says, no, yeah, mom puts this big bowl of rice right in front of me. And I go, mom, what's the rice? <laughs> and that's why I mean, all the rainbow, mom. <laughs> Anyway, the old life decays, it rots, it gets old, we know that. But the new life in Christ, we are in the church, we are the beauty of Christ. Listen to this, I love this verse, 2 Corinthians 3.18 We all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image. From glory to glory, just as from the Lord the Spirit. He, he draws this great picture. The church, being in the church, being in Christ is like looking in a mirror and seeing Christ. Only something magical happens. Magical is probably not even the right word. Something spiritual, fantastic, wonderful happens. As I look into that mirror and I see myself and all of a sudden I start to see Christ's reflection because now I'm in Christ. But the more I look at that reflection, the more I look at Jesus, the more I am transformed from glory to glory. Is it possible that the glory of Christ Jesus is rubbing off on me. Is rubbing off on you. It's not only possible, it's absolutely true. That's what's happening. As you walk in Christ, His beauty is rubbing off on you. So we have a choice. We can either live our lives gazing into the glory of Christ and in turn more and more reflecting and revealing His glory and beauty to others around us or we can choose to decay. Even as Christians, we can choose to present a false Christ to the world that, that is judgmental. 
a false Christ that's easily angered or hypocritical, or worse, we as Christians, we as the church, can attempt to present ourselves to the world by looking like the world, which in my mind is the worst thing we can do. And there are an awful lot of churches trying really hard to look like the world today, thinking that by doing so they'll draw the world in, and it don't work. We're missing it when we attempt to do that. When we attempt to build buildings that look like the world, when we attempt to act and dress and behave like the world, and I just, it's a personal pet peeve, I just wish the church would be the church. It doesn't, by the way, mean putting on airs. It doesn't mean dressing up and suiting up and, and looking so different and so uptight and so righteous that our eyeballs are popping out and no one really wants to be around us. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about loving like Christ and living like Christ and not being afraid to allow the glory of Christ to shine off of us, not being afraid to say words like, I am blessed by God. Not being afraid to speak the name of Jesus regardless of where we are. Not being afraid to be too loud when you're getting excited about Christian things in a restaurant and other people are starting to listen in. Praise God. Let the glory flow out of us that He is pouring into us. The church is beautiful, folks. And Jesus loves the church because it's His body, it's His bride, and it is, it bears His beauty. It's this amazing relationship. Why try to look like anything other than the bride and body and beauty of Christ? That is who we are. That is what He has called us to be. And you may say, well, Rick, I've got some big problems with the church. See, I was hurt by the church. I was burned in church experiences. I have seen what the church has done to other people. I have some major problems with the church. And it seems like every time in a church I try to do ministry, I end up getting hurt. So I got issues with the church. And I'll tell you, I think the problem may be right there. What do you mean? If you or someone you know has a problem with the church, the problem lies with who they are ministering to. Watch this. Look back at Exodus 28. Something is said very interesting here, both in verse, let's see, both in verse 2 and in verse 5. Verse 2 says, You shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. Oh no, it's verse 3. It says, Speak to all the skillful persons who have endowed with the spirit of wisdom, that they make Aaron's garments and to consecrate him, that he may, this is it, that he may minister as priest to who? To me, Christ says, God says, I'm giving them this holy garment. I'm going to make them look beautiful and glorious, which are the two reasons why the high priest dressed the way he did, so that he will minister to me. He says it again in verse 5, that he may minister as priest to me. What's the point, Rick? Listen, if you want to know the best way to avoid pitfalls in ministry, to avoid being hurt or harmed by the church and not to hold bitterness toward the church or toward church history that you've had, here's the answer. Don't minister for the Lord. Minister to the Lord. Don't minister for the Lord. Don't go out there and say, hey, I'm going to do all these great things for you, Father. I'm going to go out and work with people and try and make their lives a little better for you, Father. I'm going to teach a Bible study for you, Father. I'm going to be on the worship team for you, Father. It's the wrong attitude. If we're working for the Father, it will be frustrating. But if we are ministering to the Father, then how people around us react or respond to us is of little or no consequence whatsoever. Because my ministry is to the Father. 
Now I may love Mike and I may spend time with Mike and actually answer Mike's phone calls. Really. I may do that, but if I'm doing it for the Father, then I'm thinking, okay, I'm doing my ministry here. We gotta help Mike. But if when I do that, I'm not I'm just picking on Mike, Mike's a good friend. But if I'm if I'm ministering to the Father when Mike calls, he's having a hard time and needs to talk, then guess what? It's all about my relationship with Jesus, which then in turn blesses my relationship with Mike. Because there are no strings attached here. If I'm in ministry for any other reason than to the Father, then I begin to attach strings to it. I begin to say, look, I I spent all this time on the phone with you, Mike, and now you're upset with me about this other thing. Don't you remember last week when I was ministering, you know, for the Father? And I've got these little ties to all these people for things that I've done for them instead of doing it as ministry to the Lord, and it has nothing to do with them. That way, if someone gets mad at me, I can say, well, I was ministering to the Lord. That's what the high priest was called to do. That's what the priests were called to do. Not to minister to Israel. They ministered to the Lord, but in so doing, blessed Israel. Does that make sense? Colossians 3.17 Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through Him to God the Father. Whatever you do, he says, further down, do your work heartily as for the Lord. As for the Lord. Rather than men. As unto the Lord. Some of you know. Um, Mind block. Wait a minute. BJ. BJ and Tarsi. (laughs) Don't you hate that when you're... Never mind. BJ has a ministry that he does. A mission that he loves to go down to Mexico, work down in Latin America, be involved with people down there. And his ministry is called As Unto the Lord. And I think it's the coolest name for a ministry you could have. Audel. A-U-T-L. So, you know, when he goes down there, he gets out of here. <laughs> Sorry, that was bad. But as unto the Lord is, is, is his call. And that's a great call because it's our call and it was the call of the high priest, as unto the Lord. When my ministry is to the Lord, when he is my focus, it simply doesn't matter what people do or don't do in response. Well, let's move on. We've stuck in these first few verses for a while. We're going to look now at the actual garments of the priest. We're probably just going to look at the ephod and stop for tonight. But you need to understand there were six specific separate garments that the high priest would wear. And here they are. The ephod, the breastpiece, the robe, the tunic, the turban, and the sash. The breastpiece alone we may spend the entire time on next week because it's so incredible it's so intense. But with the ephod, what exactly is that? Well, why is it, first of all, why six? Why are there specifically six elements to what the high priest wore? Yes. Six is the number of a man. Six represents man, and it represents man's imperfection. So though the high priest prefigures Christ, he is not Christ. Though there may be people in your life, by the way, who look like Jesus or draw you toward Jesus, they are not Jesus. They are man. And so God designs the high priest's outfit with six elements, the number of a man. And listen to what the Hebrew writer says again, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 11. He says, every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down. Now you can miss that contrast if you read too quickly. He just said the priest stands daily ministering. Do you know the one element, the one piece of furniture that's missing in the tabernacle is a chair? There's no chair there. Because the priest never got to sit down. When he was at work, he was on his feet the whole shift. 
He's taking care of the table of showbread. He's lighting the altar of incense. He's making sure the lampstands are burning. He's coming out. He's doing the sacrificing. He's doing the washing. He's going back in. He's always on his feet. The whole time he's on, there was no place to sit for the high priest because the only place to sit in God's design of the grand heavenly tabernacle is the throne itself. And Jesus is seated. But Jesus is seated, the Hebrew writer tells us, because the work is done, finished. And no high priest could do that but Jesus himself. He sat down at the right hand of God, Hebrews 10.13, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. So I guess right now Jesus' feet are dangling on the throne because the footstool's not there yet. Verse 14, by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. So the high priest's outfit is pictured in a six different pieces, the number of a man, because the high priest was never perfect, was always imperfect, was never quite there. And the sacrifices were never done until Jesus came and did them himself. Remember, again, that one piece of furniture, strangely absent, was the chair. And even on the Sabbath day, amazing, the, high, the, the priests continued to work. Though all the rest of Israel was commanded to rest, the priests could not. They worked straight through the Sabbath. Interesting. Rest only comes with Christ Jesus. Well, there are six aspects of the priestly garments, beginning with now the ephod. Verse 6. Chapter 28. How long did it take? Wow, okay. They shall also make the ephod of gold, of blue and purple and scarlet material, and fine twisted linen, the work of the skillful workman. It shall have two shoulder pieces joined to its two ends, that it may be joined. Verse 8. The skillfully woven band which is on it shall be like its workmanship of the same material, of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet material, and fine twisted linen. So get this picture in your mind, the ephod. What it looked like. It's an apron, really, of sorts. And it's thought now, by reading Scripture and understanding, that it had two pieces that were woven together. That there was the piece in the front, and it came down over the front, probably about just to above the knees, maybe a little higher, maybe a little lower, no one's exactly sure. And another piece that went down the back, exactly the same, and was joined, as it tells us, by a skillfully woven band over the shoulders. It was sleeveless. And here this sleeveless apron was worn, this ephod is what it's called. And whenever you see the word ephod in Scripture, that's what it's referring to, this sleeveless garment that was worn over the top. There was other things worn underneath and some things worn above it as well. But the ephod was woven specifically of these colors as we talked about. And the shoulders were attached to the top and we're going to see this in a moment. Also by gold braids and two onyx stones. Some translations say barrel. It's the same stone. But these onyx stones would sit on either shoulder. We'll explain that in just a second. The ephod then was was attached around the middle. It was tied with a skillfully woven band, a, a sash. And in the Bible, and this is important to understand, the ephod is the symbol of authority and representation. That's what the ephod pictures. Authority or representation. For the high priest who donned the ephod, he was donning the authority of God. He was now the representative of the people to God, but also of God to the people. The authority, the representation of God, which brings us, by the way, to the fourth picture of the church, or the fourth description of the church. We have the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the beauty of Christ, and now number four, the badge of Christ. For the ephod to the Jew was similar maybe to a a police officer's badge to us today. 
You know, the badge, little shiny badge, looks like a little star. And we see that, oh, authority, oh, I'm getting a ticket, oh, no, I better walk, oh, am I jaywalking? You know, and we immediately kind of go there. This guy has authority in the law, which is exactly what the high priest had. And that's what the ephod signified. When he was wearing that, he was standing in the authority of God, God's representative, the badge of Christ. The badge of Christ. The church is the badge of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.20 tells us we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God were making an appeal through us. How does a God who is supernatural, who is extraterrestrial, I mean literally he is extra earthly, he's beyond earth, he's beyond time. How does he imply his will to people? How does he bring it? Well, in Old Testament times, much of the time he did it through the miracles and workings of wonders. He did that in the New Testament. He still does that today. He does it through His Word, bringing us a, a Bible that is so intricate and so amazing that as we and we've seen this, we read through and study it, and we just go, "No man could have come up with this. No man could have tied this together." But He also does it through the church. He speaks. We go out as representatives of God, and that means that as we're speaking with people, hanging out with people at work, at home, wherever we are, we represent. It's as though we are all wearing the ephod of God's authority. We are making his appeal, Paul says. The word ambassador in 2 Corinthians 5.20, we are ambassadors for Christ, is presbuo. It's where we get the word presbyteros, elder. It's that same word. We are elders for Christ. We are, And it literally means to act as a representative. And as people in the church gain, we wear the badge of Christ. We represent. But that representation can so easily be twisted and abused and misused. That authority can become so misunderstood and can harm and has harmed people. Let me give you an example of this. And you don't have to flip it. I'll read it to you real quickly. The book of Judges, chapter 8, tells us a story. And this is just following Gideon's successful crushing of the Midianites. You remember Gideon, the one who God called to raise up a great army and to fight the Midianites. Well, this great army that he raised up was too many men. And God began to whittle away this whole army until it was just 300 guys. Gideon and 300 against an army of the Midianite thousands. And they crushed him. And the way they did it, it's a great story. You need to go back and read it. But after that, all the people come to Gideon and they are so impressed and they're so amazed with him. And in verse 23, it tells them, well, let me go back to 22. The men of Israel said to Gideon, rule over us, both you and your son and your son's sons, for you have delivered us from the hand of Midian. Rule us, lead us, take us somewhere. Gideon, you're the guy. We will follow you wherever you go. And they missed it. It wasn't Gideon. And his 300 cronies, they did not win the war. God did. But now Israel is so excited about, Midian, or about Gideon, they're following him. But Gideon, I love this verse. Judges 8.23, Gideon said to them, I will not rule over you, nor shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. Amen, Gideon. Preach it, Gideon. Go on, Gideon. Verse 24, oh no. Yet Gideon said to them, I would request of you that each of you give me an earring from his spoil. Okay, what's this about, Gideon? 
Well, they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So they said, we surely will give them. So they spread out a garment. And every one of them threw an earring there from his spoil. And the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, beside the crescent ornaments and pendants and purple robes which were on the kings of Midian, and besides the neckbands that were on their camels' necks. And verse 27 tells us, Gideon made it into an ephod. An ephod. That sign of authority. He made this emblem, this symbol of the authority of God. He took the gold and made an ephod similar to that of the high priest. What's he doing here? Well, why'd you do this, Gideon? It tells us that he placed it in his city, Oprah, which is right next to Winfrey, and all Israel played the harlot with it there. And so it became a snare to Gideon and his household. Gideon says, Look, I don't want to be your king. God, I've got to do something good here. They want to make the king, and you're the king, you're the Lord, and I want them to follow you. So I know what I'll do. I'll make an ephod. I'll make a sign of your authority, Lord, like that which the high priest has. And I'll make it of pure gold, and we'll set it up in the city, and when the people see it, they will be reminded to worship you. Problem is, anytime we take some physical human thing and set it up to be a reminder to worship God, guess what we start to worship? The thing. And all of the people of Israel, the Bible says, began to go a whoring after the golden ephod and paying homage and tribute to it. And it became an idol for them and for Gideon. That's how his story ends, by the way. It doesn't end with a phone call. It ends with all the people. <laughs> it's okay unless it happens. It ends with all the people going after and, and following and worshiping this golden ephod. What, what's the point? Gang, in the church, we wear the badge of Christ, but it is not our place to draw, to draw into, to get in the way of Christ, or to come up with other elements or symbols that might help us worship. The best way to worship is to remove everything and just to focus on the Father. It might be a building for a church that becomes the golden ephod. It, it might be a ministry corporation. It might even be the authority that one feels as an elder or a teacher in a small group Bible study or in Sunday school. But when the badge or the ephod becomes the focus, that symbol becomes a snare. But in Jesus we have a great high priest, one who is unlike any other, and he is the authority. And in Gideon's word, there is no other. The Lord shall rule over you. Not the ephod, not this symbol of authority. Gideon's ephod, by the way, would not have become a snare if the people hadn't gone after it instead of seeking the Lord. And there's something to be learned here and to be understood that I think we tend to miss in the church. When we need advice, when we need direction, when we need guidance, when we need counsel, where do we go? Now stop and just think for yourself, where is the first place you, you go when you need some advice? I know for me my tendency is to go to my friends to call up those who I respect to say hey I need some help with this I'm not sure what to do with this it, it, honestly it's one of the reasons why I've surrounded myself with elders at the bridge because I want a council of many I want wisdom beyond myself and yet it can become a problem do you go to man for help or counsel do you go to Oprah a lot of people do. Go to Dr. Phil, or do you go to the Lord? 
How often when we are immediately hit with crisis in our families, in our personal lives, do we stop and just say, I need to go be with the Lord. Take your Bible, go for a walk somewhere, and talk to God about it before you call the pastor. Which is not to say, don't call me. Go ahead, call me, it's okay. But I'm learning this, and you may very well hear me say, did you talk to the Lord yet? If not, talk to Him first, because His advice is a whole lot better than mine. And then if you're still confused, let's pray together. But let's go to the Lord and not some symbol, not something else, not just this sign of authority. Go to the authority. Have you gone to the Lord? Have you prayed? Have you been alone in the Word? Well, the ephod is a sign of authority, but the real authority is the Lord. Look at verse 9. And you shall take two onyx stones and engrave on them the names of the sons of Israel. Six of their names on the one stone and the names of the other or remaining six on the other stone according to their birth. And what that was is six names of the sons of Israel probably Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Zebulun, and Issachar on the right shoulder because they were the first, they were the oldest. And then the second six, Gad, or Dan, Gad, Asher, Naphtali, Joseph, and Benjamin on the ephod on this shoulder. And once again, the authority of the ephod was clear as the onyx stones would hold the names of the tribes of Israel on the high priest's shoulders. We can recall something prophetic about our high priest. Isaiah 9.6, that the government will rest on his shoulders. That he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, and Prince of Peace. But there's something more. We'll end on this tonight. More precious is this thought. That every time the high priest entered the tabernacle, on his shoulders of the ephod, he bore the names of the sons of Israel. Every time he came before the Lord, he bore their names on his shoulders fifth and final designation for the church it is born on the shoulders of Christ it is carried on the shoulders of Jesus that every time Jesus goes before the Father Hebrews 7.25 tells us that he lives to make intercession for us he actually bears our names in a much more personal place even than his shoulders oh he lifts us up he carries us but the Bible tells us Isaiah 49.15 that our names are literally inscribed on the palms of his hands. Which if you think about it, every time Jesus looks at my name, he also sees the nail prints, the sacrifice that he paid for my name as it's inscribed on the palm of his hand. Can a woman forget her nursing child and have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, but I will not forget you. I've inscribed you on the palms of my hands. Your walls are continually before me. Aaron would go in, the high priest, bearing the names of the sons of Israel on his shoulders before the Lord every time he entered the tabernacle. And Jesus does the same. And in one of the most precious parable pictures that Jesus painted for us, we see exactly what it is that Jesus does. Luke 15:4. he says, What man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the ninety-nine and go after the one which is lost until he finds it? When he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders, rejoicing, rejoicing. Born on the shoulders of Christ on those days when you can't take another step. You are born on the shoulders of Christ. When you are weary of walking, when the weight of the world is too much for your shoulders, you are born, church, you are born on the shoulders 
of Christ. We are the bride of Christ, the body of Christ, the beauty of Christ, the badge of Christ, and we are born on the shoulders of Christ. And that is a sound description of the church. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for loving us like you do. And Lord, we know that you have washed our sin away. We know that you have taken away. You you don't even recognize or view or see our sin any longer because of the blood of Jesus on us. And yet, Lord, we remember our sin. And we remember our failure. And we are acutely aware of all the things that we do that would be disappointing to you. And Jesus, it is amazing to us that you love us this much. That you care so deeply for us. That you would even risk your eternal reputation on us. Calling us your body, your bride. And yet you do. And Father, in all these things, we are eternally grateful. And we praise you and thank you. And and as you tore that veil in the tabernacle and made a way into Jesus for us, I, I can't imagine us wanting to do anything else through all eternity but be right there in your presence in the Holy of Holies, worshiping you, thanking you, praising you, and rejoicing that we are finally the bride glorified. Lord, all I can say is thank you, and come quickly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.